Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Amos chapter 5. Hear this word which I have taken up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel is fallen. She will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There's no one to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. Uh, this is introducing a lament. So Amos chapter 5 is a new prophecy or a part of the collection of the Amos prophecies. And this one's a lament or a dirge or elegy. It's the kind of format that you sing over someone who's been judged or someone who has died. Uh, it's the same thing here in that they're singing over a nation that is, you know, in the height of its prosperity, but Amos is singing a dirge over it like we're already dead. And there's nothing left to remain here. So Amos chapters 1 and 2 are indictments or consequences for all the nations around Israel. And then Amos 3 and 4 was a specific indictment against Israel itself, or especially the wealthy cows of Bashan that were living off of other people's work. And then now we have this again to the house of Israel. And this would be... Uh, this next piece is, again, this is coming to the house of Israel. It serves to everyone in Israel as a warning. This is about to come. And so none of this makes God happy. That's why he's singing a, a song that you would sing when you mourn someone. None of this is what God wanted for Israel, but they just keep choosing other things besides God. So he was mourning all of it. The metaphor here in verse 2 is that of an innocent, vulnerable girl. Uh, she's run away. She's outside her safety areas. And now she's forsaken or she is unable to protect herself and there's no one there to protect her. And so as she, as Israel leaves God's protection, there's just nobody there to protect them against the horrors of the world. So thus says the Lord God, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left and that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left in the house of Israel. The idea is pretty clear. Ninety percent of them are going to die. So as Israel, as Assyria comes in and takes over, there will be innocence left in this land. Um, and what is going to happen to them seems to be the topic of Amos. So when leadership of Israel is in sin, rejecting God, the people of Israel are going to suffer from that. So last week we talked more to the, the women of Israel or the women of these, in these leadership ruling classes. And here he's talking to the entire nation. God's law has been broken, right and wrongs been ignored, and there's going to be a thing. But, verse 4, a not-so-concealed way to repent and get out of this. So you don't like the consequences that are coming. Here's your solution. Verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. So all the places of idolatry. Bethel was a place of idolatry. Gilgal was kind of outside the promised land where they settled early. They are religious centers. They are places where people have created a religion that's all their own. And that religion is not one that honors God and not one that blesses God. So the key locations 
you can also note when we say Bethel, Gilgal, we're also noting two of the key locations where the sons of the prophets had popped up. So he's noting these cities where in the past, in 2 Kings 2, we saw the sons of the prophet were in Bethel. So this little remnant of people saying, wait, God's word is over here and we're not following this. And then in 2 Kings chapter 2, 5, they were by Jericho or the edge of the region of Gilgal. And then in 2 Kings 4.38, Elisha came again to Gilgal and there was a dearth in the land and the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. In other words, all three of these cities that are mentioned, where they're saying don't hide here, there are also cities where we've where are, there are specific references that the sons of the prophets are in those cities. This remnant of people sticking to God's word. So God's punishment's going to sweep through Israel. And then Amos comes in and sends a warning to these, particularly these cities. And yet hereafter, we see prophets emerging from Judah. Amos is coming out of Judah. But he's coming out of Judah with a prophecy that, it, like to, that seems to be, if you want to seek the Lord and live, skedaddle. Get the heck out of there. Because what's coming isn't going to stop. So Amos is their, um, their warning, their simple proclamation to get the heck out of there. So verses 4 and 6 repeat the same idea. Seek me and live. Fairly direct and simple. Sometimes we think the prophecies are complex. That's why sometimes I think we avoid studying them. Sometimes they're really not complex. And Amos is one of these, a sheep breeder. He's not writing in poetic language. He's saying, get the heck out of Israel because what God's coming and the warning God's giving, there's no way to escape it. But if you seek the Lord, you'll live. And they actually give directions. Bethel and Gilgal are in the north. And then it says Beersheba in the south by Negev. And so notice that it says, don't seek Bethel or Gilgal, but don't pass over Beersheba. This gives you a geographic location. If you're supposed to not be in Bethel or Gilgal, it means you're coming south and you're in the Holy Land. If you keep going south and you don't pass Beersheba, which is the Negev, it means you're sitting right in Judah. And so the location of where to run isn't exactly secret either. Don't pass over it. And to pass over or go past Beersheba would mean that you just left Judah. So if you're a son of the prophet, if you're somebody that wants to serve the Lord, and you're in this nation that's gone off to sin, get into a territory where they're still following God's word. Seek me. The point of Jerusalem wasn't an arbitrary chore of inconvenience. The temple that God put where he resided his name was a purposeful place where people would go to seek him. They would seek the Urim and the Thummim of the high priest, they would seek the blessing of the sacrifices, and they had to make some sacrifices to get there. They had to get up and travel to that spot. Surely, you shall surely go into captivity. The key to Amos is that these cities are getting judged, but individuals still have a choice. The cities don't have a choice. The ruling family of Israel doesn't have a choice. They've been judged. But the good people that want to serve the Lord, they got a choice. If you want to stay there, you can buddy up with your sin, go ahead. There's a consequence coming. Also, I think um, there's, there's this idea that if you want to get out, you have an opportunity to get out. That's what God's judgment has always looked like. You can seek him and live, or you cannot. There's also some good writing here. Um, literally in the Hebrew, uh, where it starts talking about Bethel, that, that sentence is, Seek not Bethel, Bethel, or enter, enter not Gilgal, Beersheba, pass not Beersheba, Beersheba, Gilgal, Gala, 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 Bethel, Bethel. It's in a kind of, like, it sounds weird, but gala, gala, gala has three different meanings. So if you take the format of Bethel, Bethel, and then keep coming in, it's Gilgal once, and then you keep coming in, it's Beersheba once, 
And in the middle it says, pass not Beersheba. This is what we call a chiastic form. So it works in from both sides and in the middle it's seek not, don't go past Beersheba. Get out of here, go south. Doesn't say go directly to Jerusalem. They can set it, settle anywhere they want, which is why we find some of the prophets in Tekoa, why we find some in Bethlehem. We find them all over the place. But they're in Judah. Gilgal is a, <laughs> another play on words, and I, I think this is the kind of thing when you, when you work with blue-collar people, they, they often find humor in strange places. Gilgal literally, literally means the rolling of a wheel. So rolling, rolling, rolling. So when it says, you know, rolling or Gilgal, and then don't roll past Beersheba, there's actually a Hebrew play on words there too. So this sentence is meant to be memorized, that's my point. The way he's putting this together is that this is something you'd kind of chant or your kids would be repeating in the living room and they would be saying, Bethel, Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba, pass not Beersheba, Beersheba, Gilgal, gala, 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 Bethel, Bethel. I mean, it's definitely something that feels good to say or something that I think kids would grab onto. Beersheba in the Hebrew is sevenfold oath or the oath of divine perfection. Uh, don't roll past God's plan or God's oath or God's promise. So if you want to seek God and live, you can. And then here's a phrase to help you remember it. The word gala, where it says that three times, gala, 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 is to uncover, to remove, or to be carried away. So another kind of multiple meaning. The northern kingdom is going to get carried away by Assyria. You don't get carried away to where you're going past God's oath. And so these phrases here and the way he's put this together, really, that's the most artistic thing we've seen in Amos so far. God's house is not to be rolled past. God's plan isn't to be abandoned. And it's Jerusalem's temple that's in this area, and it's the solid place where you don't have to keep rolling. You can kind of settle on what God has. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live. Seems to be a theme tonight. Seek the Lord and live. Lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with no one to quench it in Bethel, you who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. So again, that idea of seeking. The house of Joseph would be Ephraim and Manasseh, and Ephraim was the largest and most powerful kingdom of the northern kingdom. Samaria was sitting in that area. So when he says like a fire in the house of Joseph, this punishment that's coming, fire's indiscriminate. When a fire starts in your house, smart people get the heck out of the house. And that's the instincts, what we tell kids. If you got to get out of that house and break a window to do it, you break the window to get out of the house. And the house of the northern kingdom is going to go on fire. And Amos's warning is if you're in the northern kingdom, Assyria is not going to be picky about who they haul off to the outer parts of the empire. This is interesting because if Amos is giving this warning to these, these northern ten tribes and there's a remnant in each of the ten tribes that loves the Lord, that means that we still have Ephraimites living in Judah later on in life. We still have the house of Asher, the house of Dan. We still have remnants from each of these tribes that are going to survive because they listened to Amos and got the heck out of the northern kingdom. And we mentioned this in Kings. Like we went through Kings and we're like, it seems like the, the prophets have kind of moved south here. And in Amos we see why. It's because they were told to move south. And, and get out of there. And if you stay there, then you're just as good as the folks that have corrupted justice. You're actually a part of the system that God doesn't like. And the idea of turning justice to wormwood, um, wormwood's, uh, we call it Artemisia today, uh, or the Greeks did. It's after the goddess of Artemis. It has a bitter flavor. 
It's what they would use to flavor alcoholic drinks, like really strong alcohol. You'd put wormwood in it. And what wormwood would do, or why they would put this in their drinks, is alcohol mixed with wormwood would get the worms out of your system. So in the ancient world, if you ate bad meat, it would have worms in it. Um, so wormwood is something that we would kind of sort that out and make sure that we um, were drinking wormwood to get rid of the worms. The clippings from wormwood are used to ward off lice and fleas. Here's the idea. They're turning justice into something that's so toxic that even parasites don't want it. Don't be in that system. Don't be part of that system. They turn justice into wormwood, which is this nasty stuff that gets rid of the nastiest creatures. Wormwood. It's known for its bitterness. And they lay and the righteous they lay righteousness to rest. Literally, the the phrase there means to bury it, to get to just say we're, we, justice is dead. We're not even going to try anymore. So Amos repeats God's issue with their corrupt legal systems. We talked about that last week. And they come back to this verse six: Seek the Lord and live. This is obvious, timeless, evidenced principles of God. So. I want to pause for a second because we've had in the last couple weeks some questions about some of these things come up. There's a warning here that judgment comes and there's a way of escape. We have the same warning from Jesus. Repent, seek Jesus, and live. We just, you know, we just got to that in Mark 16 this morning. Like there's a very clear biblical principle that gets issued in the prophecies, which is consistent with the New Testament. The warning of judgment is indicative of the prophecies. They're always a warning of judgment. They always show us what God does or doesn't like, what he appreciates, and how he deals with it. So not only do we see what God judges, we see how God judges. And the fulfillment of these prophecies show us that God keeps his word, which is what we're supposed to remember. But here's the deal. Most people ignore Amos. And I think this is like almost like a, a, a few thoughts on just how we deal with prophecy. How do we read prophecy? How do we look at prophecy? Why do we look at prophecy? It's part of God's word. It's part of the fullness of God's word, the whole counsel of God. Jesus, when he was resurrected, sat down with his disciples and went through the prophets with them. So we have no precedent biblically to abandon or not read the prophets. The disciples did it. Jesus told them to. He said he was the fulfillment of these things. We get to know the character of God. There's no point at which we see any reservation in the Bible to not read the prophecies or pay attention to the prophecies. Yet today in the church, we have a lot of people that just abandon the prophets and they don't regard them. And it occurred to me when Amos gave this prophecy, most people disregarded him and didn't listen to him. In Jesus' day, they didn't see Jesus coming because most people ignored the prophets and didn't listen to them and didn't read them. Too difficult. Don't want to deal with it. Only applies to back then. And when we think we're being progressive by saying those things today, we're actually repeating the same mistakes that they did in Amos' day, Jesus' day, and today. To say we don't need to read these parts of the Bible. Selective Bible reading is really dangerous. And it's an insidious thing because it comes in and these kind of creepy ways. Amos is easily ignored, right? Assyria was subdued. They had a good economy. When he came into town, he's saying doom is coming. And they're like, doom what? We just got our new hot tub, right? Nothing's going wrong. I got my cell phone. I got things are hopping at work. Like, how can you possibly think we're being judged? And they just ignored the guy. There were a few people that listened, the fanatics, the sons of the prophets. They got the heck out of Israel because they were told to. 
and they moved. Historically, this is not uncommon. Many people choose to ignore prophets today because if you read the prophecies and start seeing things around you that look similar, people call you a fanatic. Well, you're just nutso. If you don't read the prophecies, you can dismiss that as that you're above that or intellectually superior to the prophets. He's, Amos is just a sheep breeder. Everyone in this room is likely intellectually superior to Amos. Easy to dismiss. It's too simple. It's too basic. Today, the prophets are more often dismissed than any other part of the Bible. Why? Why is the enemy so excited about that? Because this is actually God speaking through a human being, say, thus says the Lord, and we get pages and pages and pages of what God says. That's hard to hear. In Moses' day, when he came down and had the bright, shiny face, people were like, back off. We need you to be between us and God. The tendency of the flesh is we don't want to hear directly from God. It's uncomfortable to hear directly from God. You know, in chapter 1, when he's going through all those nations, he was holding Gentile nations accountable to the law, even though they hadn't read it because he'd written it on their hearts. He holds Judah to the law, and he holds Judah to the law because they even saw the example of Israel before them. And today we've seen the example of all those Gentile nations. I don't see a lot of Philistines walking the earth anymore. We see the judgment of northern Israel. That, that disappeared. We see the judgment of Judah. We see the judgment of Jesus Christ resurrected, judging sin and death. We have all those things in our history, yet the prophets still get ignored today. And that, to me, is disturbing. There's a precedent for this in the New Testament. They were called Sadducees. Sadducees were the intellectual elite. They'd all gone to college. And at college, their little Sadducee professors taught them that they don't need to pay attention to certain things. In fact, the Sadducees taught the only thing you need to read are the first five books of the Bible. All the songs, all the prophets, you can ignore all of those. Anything supernatural, you can ignore it because clearly supernatural things can't happen. And the Sadducees came in like those intellectual snobs and taught all their people just to ignore all that stuff. What was Jesus' critique to them? Frankly, they were missing out on the blessing. And Jesus, when he interacted with the Sadducees, often led off with this. Have you not read? You have the book. God's given it to you. Haven't you read it? And it's super convicting. People get uncomfortable with that. Because if you haven't read Zephaniah, God actually holds you accountable to that. Because here's Zephaniah. It's in the book. Here's Amos. And if you haven't looked through these things and God's given you time on this planet to do that, then you should at least seek the Lord and live, right? Instead of just saying, well, I don't need to do those things. And so the Sadducees rejected Jesus outright. We no longer have Sadducees, right? They too have been judged. And Jesus took all authority from their high and mighty positions. And today we don't have Sadducees. That's why they're sad, you see. And they were very good people. They were Jews. They were snappy dressers. They looked good. They sounded good. And they came across as intellectually superior to everyone they talked to. And we still have Sadducees. They're just not called that anymore today. We still have intellectuals that claim they're superior to this book. And that they can, on their human authority, decide what parts are important and what parts are just culturally relative. But God never gave us that condition, and he never split it up in the Bible anywhere. So let me, when we look at the Jews, they treated this as the prophetic word. Luke 1.70, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. According to Luke, they believed that the words of the prophets had been around before the prophets existed, because God's word is eternal. It's yesterday, today, and forever. 
So today we still have to ask, have you not read? And millions of Christians have to admit, no, they haven't read it. It's part of why we started this Bible study. Is we had so many people coming through my classes at Bethel that hadn't actually read the book that they're claiming to stake their life on. That's foolish. I wouldn't stake my life on something I hadn't read, that I, I wouldn't have stuck with. So biblical prophecy, and I think this is worth our time. We're only going to do the one chapter tonight because I think this is important for us because it came up in a couple of our Q&As and we need to get there. There's four applications for any prophecy we read. So as we go through Amos, we go through Hosea, we're going to go through, there's four different ways to look at prophecies that are very consistent. And I want to show you from the scriptures why they're consistent and used that way. And the first is clear, like the easy one, right? There's a fulfillment of these prophecies in actual human history. Assyria does come, the northern kingdom does get destroyed. Easy enough? So we read these because they're part of history. When we see that history gets fulfilled or these prophecies get fulfilled, that's why the books of Amos were kept is because when he said something was going to happen, it did. So they kept all of it. Why'd they keep all of it if it was already done? That's like keeping an old newspaper. And it's because of the other three reasons. One, this was a warning to Northern Kingdom of Israel. It had a local application. The people in the Northern Kingdom should have gotten the heck out. But God keeps his promises. The thing is, before the promises are kept, it's very fuzzy. And that's why they ignored Amos because they don't know if Amos is right or not. So they have to make a decision if they want to leave the Northern Kingdom or not. And what's unknown prior to the event is then known clearly afterwards. It's easy to read history in retrospect. It's harder to see it coming. And that's true of all the prophecies. Most accept that the prophecies have come true. So biblically speaking, most people agree that what Amos said was going to happen in the Northern Kingdom actually happened, and that's because we have evidence of it. But the people that first heard Amos did not have evidence of it. They had to take it on faith and make life decisions based on what they were hearing from Amos. Does that make sense? So here's number two. First, we have the fulfillment in history. Second is the prophecies are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Luke 24, 44, And he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms concerning me. That's a direct refutation of sodiciacal thinking. That Jesus said all of the Old Testament is a fulfillment of what Jesus did. So we read the prophets to see how that worked and how that happened. Amos, I don't think, was writing about Jesus. But because God's word is going through him and God's word is eternal, he also drops some really interesting clues about what happened with Jesus. That Jesus sat down and taught his disciples about all these fulfillments. In Matthew, 10 times the word fulfilled is in there. That the prophets got fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So it's kind of, again, a historical kind of piece. But when you look at Christ specifically, the direct language of the prophecy was also fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All the Sadducees living during Jesus' time who ignored the prophets missed it. All of the Pharisees that were studying the prophecies but reading it their own way, they too missed it. And so we have no reason to think that when something, when the event of Jesus hadn't happened yet, how to read Amos and see Jesus would be very difficult. But after it's happened, you look back on it and it's easy. Wow, wow, there's Jesus all over it. But that's not a misuse of the prophets. It's actually the use that we see scripturally being made that Jesus himself made. I have fulfilled the law and the prophets, even though the prophets weren't written about him. So then you get to that same sodiciacal argument. Well, we can't apply the prophecies to our lives today. Well, why? Where's the biblical precedent not to apply them to our lives today? Where is that? 
it's a human thought coming straight from the ancestors of the Sadducees that we just disregard parts of the Bible. It's, it's a dangerous thought. Third reason. If we want to seek the Lord and live, the prophets, because they're the word of God, give us eternal truths. So we have historical fulfillment, Christ fulfillment, eternal truths that are spoken in the scriptures. God sends these proofs through the prophets, proved by the events in history, proved by the fulfillment of Jesus, but also a promise that we should be looking at these and learning from them. All scripture is given by the Holy Spirit. All scripture is good for teaching, reproof, and correction. These are things we can use and apply in our lives. Acts 3.21, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began that includes Amos. And, and to argue at some level that the restitution of all things has already happened, that's, that's a stretch. I don't think we're still here and we're still in the same kind of thing. The sons of the prophets following God made decisions about their life that saved their lives based on what they heard in Amos. And we're not any different today. We're descendants of the sons of the prophets, the remnant of people still trying to stick to what God says. Acts 3.24, yes, and all the prophets, from Samuel to those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. Wait, these days is post-resurrection of Jesus. So when they say something like that, they're talking about the age you and I live in. And that we're speaking of things these days. Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's in the book of Acts. That's after Jesus. Spoken to Christians. You're the fulfillment of this. You're the sons of the prophets that should be listening to this, just like your spiritual forefathers listened to this, and foremothers. So we're the seed of this. The third reason we read the prophets is because we have eternal truths there that we need to listen to, and we need to hear. Jesus does not keep them bound. There is no reference that Amos is just for Israel and just for the northern kingdom. There's no relegation of the prophecies in the scriptures. It's only human intellectuals that relegate the prophets. And that's tough to hear sometimes. Like, I got to soften my heart to that. So if we relegated them, then Jesus misused the prophets when he was talking about himself because clearly a number of the prophecies were David writing about himself. Well, that's just David writing about himself. Jesus didn't use them that way. He claimed that the Holy Spirit through David was actually talking about him, Jesus. And he says that the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophets gives us eternal truths to apply today. And that's taught and shared amongst the disciples the first century the, this, where the, the church was exploding. They treated the prophets as scripture straight from God to them and to their lives. That's where I get that from. So when, I, when we go through here and we look at some of the things that show us the eternal truths of God, we know one of those things is Israel is supposed to be a light to the world. Well, these prophecies are just about Israel. Well, Israel is supposed to be a light to the world. Psalm 67, 2, that your way may be known to the earth, your salvation to all nations. Israel is supposed to speak to all of the planet about what God was and his holiness. So when the church is founded, Jesus takes that mandate and transfers it to the church. And this is not replacement theology. I would call it an extension. Israel is special. They are unique. But the church is also special and unique. And this is what Jesus says, Matthew 4, 5, 14. You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill and it cannot be hidden. 
Church, it's your job to share what God's will is and what his purpose is and his goodness to the rest of the world. This is awesome. It's not just Jerusalem, but Jerusalem as a precursor or an image of the church, believers, sons of prophets, those who choose to follow the king and listen to the king. It was true when it was spoken. It was true with Jesus. It's eternally true. But what's unknown before an event is hard to see. You have to take it on faith. Once the event has happened, you can look back and go, wow, perfect fit. We study prophecy to know God's eternal nature and his will, and many people miss this. And they miss out on knowing their God. And I think sometimes those people have a relationship problem. It's hard to have a relationship with someone you don't know. You don't know God's character. You don't know his heart. How do you know him? You know of him, but you don't know him. So the prophecies give us this direct communication. God's word to our hearts. Finally, number four. We got the historical use of the prophets. We've got the Jesus use of the prophets. We've got the eternal use of the prophets. But number four, we have the application to today use of the prophets. I want to give you some biblical precedents for this. We don't know much. When we look forward in our lives, we look at tomorrow, we don't know what's going to happen next. Like it's unknown to us what's happening. But after it happens, we're going to look at the prophets and go, oh, God told us everything. The same way they did with Amos, the same way they did with Jesus, the same way the early disciples did. So we look at the prophecies, not, and I think there's a danger. We can flip on one to two sides with prophecies. And you guys, you know me long enough to know this. One error with the prophets is to see an answer or fulfillment in everything. Oh, a bug went across my backyard and there's a bug reference back in the prophets. It must be God sending me a message. That's a bit extreme. But there's another error that I think is far more common, which is I'm just not going to read the prophets because they're too complex for me. And then you never see God trying to give you messages. And that is also an error. And both of those are on the, on the opposite sides of the narrow path we're supposed to take. We are supposed to be looking for God in the world today. And God hasn't changed. So um, we're promised that God will work in our days. Habakkuk 1.5, look among the nations and watch and be utterly astounded for I will work a work in your days, which you won't believe even if it were told to you. Thing is, it has been told to us. So when God does a wonder on this planet, we Christians get, you know, we start looking at it going, is that God? Is that God blessing people? Is that God warning people? And to an outsider, that sounds a bit fanatic, just like Amos sounded fanatic when he went in in a perfectly good economy and said, this place is about to be destroyed. But he was right and everybody else was wrong. So it's not fanatical if it's true. It's actually reasonable. At no point in the scriptures do we see anyone getting corrected for seeing connections between the prophets. We never see that. And the scriptures are pretty complete. They kind of tell us how to live, but they never tell us to back off on looking for God. In fact, they tell us the exact opposite. Seek him and be saved. So how do you seek God if you're not looking at the world and seeing where God's active and moving? That's foolish to not look. It's foolish to minimize everything to naturalistic behavior. Then you're, you're arguing God's not active, and that's actually contrary to the word of God. God is active. We're told he is, that he hasn't stopped. We're told God works amongst all nations, not just Israel. We see biblical examples of God working amongst all nations. Heck, between Elisha and Amos, there's a guy named Jonah. He prophesied to Assyria. So he actually went to another nation and gave them warnings. God works amongst all nations. He raises leaders up and he puts leaders down. So when we see changes in politics, we do know God's at work in it. The question is how? 
And, and then a last thought on that. Let's say we're wrong. Let's say we see the bug crossing our yard and we say that it's God, but we're wrong. Do you think you're going to get to heaven and God's going to say, rebuke you for being overactive and looking for him in your life? I don't think that's going to happen. There's no example of that. And then here's the other piece. There's nowhere in the Bible where it restricts anyone or tells anyone to dismiss a prophetic voice, ever. So there is a decision you have to make if Amos says, get the heck out of the northern kingdom. The sons of the prophets had to make a decision if they were going to listen or not, and they should use their brains to do that. So I think when we look at prophecies, yet people today still look at prophecies, and they make life decisions based on what they think God likes or doesn't like. And I don't think God's going to ever be upset with somebody for being overexcited about doing that, which is why we don't stop people from saying things like that. We actually, you know, hey, that's interesting. And I might in my head think, that's a bit nutters. But I'm not going to dismiss that out of hand. And if somebody's looking for God and making decisions to follow Jesus based on what they see, that's always a good thing, even if they're doing it for the wrong reasons. Following Jesus is always the best outcome of how we look at the world. So when you see verse 7, you turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. Literally, this, they do this figuratively in the time of Amos, but with Jesus, they actually lay his body in the earth. They lay righteousness itself in the earth, literally. So it, it happens there. Even today, the eternal application of that, God still doesn't like when people mess up justice. There's no reason to think that's not eternally applicable. And yet we also see that we're going to have people in the world that continue to take righteousness and justice and smash it all over the place. Just look at northern Nigeria. It's, it, and we see what's happening. And for me, that gives me a peace that I know God's watching that. He's paying attention to it, and he's not going to let it go on forever. There's horrors happening in this world that God has spoken against already. That means they're not his will that that's happening. Humans are doing it all by themselves. So literally, we can take a verse like verse 7 and apply it in all four ways. And we should. In fact, we're taught to do that in the scriptures. So if we see God's harm in these things and it drives us to holiness, there's no wrong in that. It's good. Do that. If we see uh, enthusiastic prophecy watchers, we let them be enthusiastic. And if it is your heart, you can be enthusiastic with them and enjoy that. It's not rocket science. You're either willfully ignorant of what God says and you're intentionally not trying to see God in the world. That would be what I'd call the spirit of antichrist. Or you're actively trying to see God at work in your life and you're trying to see what Christ wants for your life. The intellectual dismissal of the prophets is the same in Amos' day, Jesus' day, and today. The people that dismiss the prophecies often have great degrees behind their name, and they're very deceptive and very stoic in how they put across their ideas. But that doesn't make them right. It just makes them confused. So when God tells Israel he hates sin, like we read in chapter 1, we know that he hated sin then, Jesus' day, and today, and he's got a plan to get rid of it tomorrow. We know that when he says in Amos 1.6 that he hates slavery, that the slave traders that called themselves Christians were just flat out wrong. And it's why Christians stood up and fought slavery and changed the world in doing it. When God says he doesn't like vengeance, that's why we, there were Christians that said to the Hatfields and McCoys, you must put down your guns. Enough with the vengeance. So we have Christian precedents in modern situations to try to say to people, just vengeance is the Lord's. It's not, it doesn't belong to us. 
Amos chapter 113, when God says he doesn't like killing babies, he still doesn't like killing babies. It's an absolute application, and it's an eternal truth that that's an especially horrid crime to God. He doesn't want to see it. So in our day and age, Christians are called to not to do everything we can to try to keep those babies from getting killed. And so that's a political position. Oh, Sean, you're taking a political position. I don't think I'm taking a political position. I'm reading the scriptures and what God hates, and I'm going to align myself with God. That means, young ladies, if any of you become pregnant before wedlock and you're tempted to get an abortion, please come talk to me first. We will take care of you. We will help you get through it. You made a dumb mistake by having an adulterous relationship, and we will get past that together. And we will take care of that baby. And we will have a dog distracting our Bible study and a baby distracting our Bible study. And as a body and as a church, we do everything we can do to stop that from happening. We care and love and come around people so that those evils don't happen in our immediate circle and even in our extended circle as we go to vote at the polls. And so those are pieces. I don't get political a lot, but when we read through the prophecies, we're going to have disagreements about how this gets applied. But we shouldn't have disagreements about the idea that God hates slavery, God hates vengeance, and God hates killing babies. Period. That's just God's will. If you don't like God's will, I've said this before, under the Bible, stepping on your toes, move your toes. It's really easy. Bend. Don't be so stubborn and hard-hearted. Don't be such a sodacy that you can't apply what this is to our modern-day life. So the northern kingdom provides an example for Judah. They ignore it. Provides a precedence for Jesus. They ignore that. It provides eternal truths, which many people ignore every day, and it provides a guidance for our life today, and many people still ignore it. But I don't want to ignore it. I kind of want to read it. I don't want to read Amos and say this is only for Israel, because then we're saying that God accidentally put a book in the Bible that has nothing to do with us. I don't think that's a... That, where's the precedent for that? So, Luke 21, 36. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape the things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. Specifically, Israel maintains the word of God, they're special, they're chosen, so that the church can maintain holiness and righteousness and share it with the whole earth. Psalm 917, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. All nations. God's not relegating his word to one group of people over another. There's nowhere in the scriptures that that's said or that's marked out. So we have things given to Israel that were then kept by Israel so that we could read them. And that's how Jesus applies it. That's how the disciples apply it. That's how Paul applies it. All of them. Across the board, 100%. So we're blessed to be watchers, just like, and I, and I think this is important because we have watchers in our body. We have people that love prophecy stuff. They go crazy over this stuff. I love those people. They're precious to me. They're just as precious to a church body as our teachers are. They're just as precious to the church body as those worship people are. They're just as precious to the body of Christ as our prayer warriors, as our, as our hosts, as the people that cook the delicious sloppy joes. The watchers are one of the key groups of people that God has put in the church. And they're people that just love digging this stuff and, and, and tracking with it all. And they help us stay on pace. And it's a good thing to have them around. And when we stop or we say, ah, oh, you should, you know, you should be kind of careful about how you treat that. Why? Why are we doing that? What is the spirit that tells us to tell people that? Because we're not that way. And when you got people that are super excited about something, the tendency psychologically of human beings is to knock them down a notch. Why? Why are you doing that? 
let the spirit go. What's the harm? So these next verses are going to do all four things. That was a long setup for verse 8. Um, they're true to Amos, they're true to Israel, they're true to Jesus, they're true to us eternally, and they're true of things to come. Verse 8, he made the Pleiades and Orion, he turns the shadow of death into morning and makes the day as dark, at night, as dark as night. He calls the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name, and he rains ruin on the strong so that fury comes upon the fortress. Was true then, true for Jesus, true eternally. Pleiades and Orion are the easiest two constellations to spot in the sky. One's part of the Big Dipper, and the you know the three stars together is Orion's belt. They're super easy to spot. Pleiades, you may want to know, is the gravitational center center of the universe. But Amos explains why God is to be sought for life because He's the giver of life. Seek God and live. Why? Because He made it all. Makes the day as dark as night, fulfilled with Jesus on the cross, Mark 15. God is mighty to save us from death. He's powerful enough to command the oceans, and he's powerful enough to do all this. Verse 9, he reigns ruin. Equally up to the task of saving us, God is also fully capable of bringing judgment. Those fortresses, fortress for their thing would be the strongest defensive technology that they had. But to God, no problem. He will wipe that fortress out. God's self-existence, self-referenced, self-relational, and humans presume that they can control this thing we call Yahweh God. And Amos's point is you don't control God. If you disregard what God sees as good and evil, you're in peril, not God. God will not be diminished by your opinions of him. Verse 10, they hate the one who rebukes at the gate. They abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Therefore, because you've tread down the poor and take green taxes from them, though you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. Therefore, the prudent keep silent at that time, for it's an evil time. <laughs> so... The idea that people hate the one that rebukes them or reminds them what God's word says, uh, that hasn't gone away at all. This is just true of humanity, right? The prophet wasn't welcomed then. Jesus wasn't welcomed. We're not welcomed sometimes. And it's just because we love what God actually says and we're happy to go with it. One who speaks uprightly. The idea of uprightly there is the only thing that stands. And we're told to stand on God's word, stand on God's truth. Always true. God doesn't like the treading down of the poor. He doesn't like abusive taxes. He doesn't like oppressive human laws. He doesn't like legal oppression as much as he doesn't like things like child trafficking, right, which is criminal oppression. But God doesn't make a distinction. When humans oppress, he has an issue with it. When humans are kept in poverty and they can't get out, that's a major problem for God. And he doesn't like that. People self-justify that because it's legal, it's okay. But God's law is far above our human laws. And there's some very clever people. If you've looked at the tax code carefully, there are some very clever people taking your money in ways you haven't even thought of. Most people in jail have an excuse for what they did. Most people that commit crimes, even criminal crimes, have a justification for why they do it. And it's no different today and it's no different in the church. When we do things against God's will, brothers and sisters, lovingly, I want to say this, we've always justified what we've done in our head. It's very rare 
that some that as God's working away the layers of our sin, that we, we are fully aware of the things we do that transgress God. It is hard to hear when we're doing something that's against God's will. It's hard for me to hear it. I don't like to be told it. It's usually Steph that tells me, right? But I don't like to hear it. Sometimes I'll, I won't even hear it when she says it. But a day later, before I go to bed that night, I'll just admit it. Yeah, I was wrong. Nobody likes to be rebuked, yet we need to be rebuked. Nobody enjoys correction, yet we have to get corrected or we can't get more closer to God's righteousness. So in the sense that humans always justify their positions, when Amos comes out and says things like no slavery, there's no justification for slavery. God doesn't like it. We should be against it, period. This is a much more uh, hot-button topic in the 1600s than it is today because of Christians, because of the influence of the Jews and the Christians, slavery's largely been wiped out. Yet there's still slavery on this earth, still exists. God takes issue with corrupt courts. It says the gate, that's where the courts would be. The good folks were there. God abhors that. When trials and courts are operating and we don't seem to see justice there, God doesn't like that. Houses of hewn stone, that would have been the wealthy houses back then. That secure world you think you've built, it's not that secure. One fire, this house could be ashes, right? So please be careful with the coffee pots and things like that. But that house of hewn stone, the place where they put their trust and their, their security, that's not as secure as they think it is. The afflicting of the just that's there. What is it when people afflict the just? It's when somebody says that this is true and then people go after them. We absolutely can apply that to what's going on with cancel culture today. When somebody says what is right according to God's word and then they're afflicted because of it, God's watching all that happen. Going after somebody just because they spoke truth or they refused to speak your lie, major problem from God's perspective. This is evil incarnate is the way God would look at this. So what's the benefit? Why go after somebody who's just speaking truth? Because it's hard to listen to the truth when you don't like what it says. Whole cities are guilty of maintaining what's called here manifold transgressions. Manifold transgressions. Multiple or layer upon layer transgressions. Where God sees that and as nations falter or fall away from God's law, there are natural principles where those nations rise and fall. Intolerance of other human beings is one of the indicators of a nation that will fall. And it'll fall either because God will make that happen through supernatural inter intervention or it'll fall on its own corruption. Either way, we're told in the scriptures that God doesn't like cities and legal systems that have manifold transgressions in them. We can apply that today. There's nothing here that says don't apply this. For I know, verse 12, God was and he is aware of sin and he sees it all and God knows that it's happening. But he doesn't always act right away. There is a gap between the prophetic warnings and the consequences. There's a gap today between Jesus says, I will return, but you will have to abide until I do. So God always leaves time for repentance because he doesn't want people to perish. He wants people to listen. Verse 13, therefore the prudent keep silent. <laughs> when the whole system's gone corrupt, it makes a lot of sense that, and there, again, this isn't an accusation, but there are people that are prudent or sensible and they just don't get into it because they don't want to be afflicted too. So you've got people that aren't even necessary. I mean, this isn't in the past tense. This is a general principle. It's in the present infinitive form that the prudent people will stay silent. That's an evil time. 
And we've had multiple times throughout the last 2,000 years where we've seen an evil days or days when good people just try to get under the radar and hide out and endure and survive. But the whole nation's gone nuts. This isn't to say that the godly don't speak at all. It's just the prudent here because it's prudent or reasonable to not get into it with these people. Yet it's ironic, I think, because Amos in writing this is actually doing the exact opposite. Right? The prudent stay quiet, but Amos is going right into the throne room and telling them all the things they're doing wrong, which then by logic means Amos is not a prudent person, but he is a godly person. So where some of the godly people are just staying quiet, some of the godly people, because they're called by God to do so, will speak out against those crimes and those wrongs. So God calls some to speak out. He calls some to exercise prudence. And that's, that's okay. You just need to figure out which one you are. Is it time to speak or is it time to be silent? Verse 14, seek good and not evil. This is present tense. That you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you. That's not relegated to a certain group of people. That's a truth. As you have spoken, hate evil, love good. Just repeat it. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Spoken to Israel, eternally true. God gives the warning. God gives a way out. Seek good and not evil. Um, seek is to, in the Hebrew, to resort to or inquire or consult. Consult what is good. Inquire of what is good. Pursue what is good. Don't look for evil. To, don't look to the evil things of this world for your answers in life. They will fail you. They will, they will eat you up. Historically, they completely ignore Amos as a country. They really do. Some of the remnants get the heck out, but most of them ignore him. They consider him to be over-the-top, extreme, fanatical. But he's right. The Lord God of hosts will be with you. God will be with those people who seek him. Promise is same today. It gets repeated in the New Testament. John 13, 33. Little children, I shall be with you a little longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say it to you. Jesus takes that and carries it right over to the church age. Seek him and you shall live. It's true for Jesus. As you have spoken. They say this in the synagogue. So it says, as you have spoken, in verse 14, that the Lord, he's making reference to the fact that they go to synagogue. It's just not the one God set up. And every week at synagogue, they read the scriptures and they read things like the Lord of hosts will be with you, but it's an empty phrase. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you. As you have spoken, you say this every Sunday. Yet you don't think he's with you in seeing the evil that you're doing on Monday? Hate evil, love good. It's about the heart. Stay tuned into the things that you are loving and what you get excited about. This is called taste, right? And as a Christian, we lose taste for the things that are evil and we gain a taste for the things that are good. And this is something to get excited about. This is something to, as I think sometimes non-Christians, they, they embrace what's evil because they have a taste for it. But after a while, it gets sour. And they start to realize this is a dead-end path. And all we have to do as believers is be in their life at that point and tell them there is a, you can love something other than your evil and that will actually feed you and develop you versus eat you and consume you. There's a different way to go. Establish justice. Pursue and work towards these things in every one of the situations. Sometimes at work, if you see somebody getting railroaded, it might be time to speak up. And you see injustice being done or 
criminal behaviors happening behind the closed doors, might be time to step in. It may be that. Ultimately, God is giving this warning to Israel and saying, it might be that God will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. The nation of Israel is going to be erased, but he might still have grace for those individuals that seek him and follow him. And this is, I think, goes right to that principle. And we saw this as we were going through the histories. God often proclaims judgment, but allows the group to be judged where individuals that want to get the heck out of there can. And the same thing's true today. Those that want to follow Jesus can. It doesn't matter what city, state, country you're from. It's a worldwide truth. If you want to follow the Lord, you can follow him. And it really doesn't matter what your government's doing. Same thing's true with Israel. It didn't matter that the northern kingdom was a corrupt government. The individuals could seek him and live. And then it says this, and, and this is where we get this theology of the remnant. The Lord of God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph, those few people that still follow him. And he'll have some grace there. And this promise is true then. Jesus repeats it. The disciples carry it forth and actually call it the gospel. Is that those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are baptized will be saved. Period. Those that believe in the Lord will get saved. That's the remnant. Verse 16. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, says this. There shall be wailing in all streets, in all the streets, and they shall, and shall they, ah, let me do that again. There shall be wailing in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, alas, alas. Because I don't know if we use that language anymore, but I'd like to see somebody in the street just yell out, alas, alas. I'd listen. Alas, alas, they shall call the farmer to mourning and the skillful lamentators to wailings. So the skillful lamenters in the Jewish tradition, they would hire people at a funeral to cry. And some people are gifted with a loud, annoying cry. Well, and the Jews liked these people and they paid them to do it. So if you had a specially good crier, you'd hire these people to come to your funeral so that that person would be mourned properly. I'm so glad we don't do this anymore. But these professional, skillful lamentators are there. But in this, it says, the farmer shall be called to mourning. In other words, there's so many dead people that the professional people can't keep up. And they start calling in the farmers to do the wailing at the funerals. The idea here is mass judgment. Verse 17, in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. So it's interesting because he's referencing what they talk about in synagogue, but then he's making this, woe for you that desire the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord's day of judgment, but it's also a day of salvation. We're told to want the day of the Lord. And here we're given a warning, a woe to you. Be careful of what you're asking for. Are you ready to meet your maker? Are you prepared? Are you in good shape? Because false religions will still claim that they want to see the day of the Lord. But in doing that, they're asking for their own judgment. And that's what Amos is talking about here. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It'll be darkness, not light. You're, you're wishing for the wrong thing. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Great verse. Put this on a t-shirt. Okay, that's just bad luck. You get attacked by a lion and you run like heck. And then you come around the corner and a bear is waiting for you. That's the day of the Lord for people that are following after false things. There's no running from this. Or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand, a house being a place of safety. Come home, you relax. Lean a hand on the wall and a serpent bites you. Because there's a serpent apparently living in your wall. This actually happens in sod houses and things like that. You go into this place you think is safe, but it's not safe because it's false. 
Verse 20, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? For those with indictments and sin against them, the day of the Lord's not a good thing. It's the end. That day of the Lord, that day that Assyria is unleashed on Israel, that day when Jesus when returns for us, that day is not good for people that aren't following after the king. It's, a, it's, it's, it's terrifying. The day of the Lord is there. Old Testament, Isaiah 2.12, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty. So that's interesting. The day of the Lord is upon the sinful, but it's not on the righteous. Upon every one of those that is lifted up, he shall be brought low. The arrogant, the haughty, the sodices, the people that think they know what parts of the Bible are more important than others. People that selectively read. The haughty. Those people have to worry about what's going to happen when judgment comes. The same term is liberally used by the apostles. It's taught and it's expected. Even though we're not talking about Assyria here, Acts 2.20, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord comes. There's this concept called day of the Lord that Amos uses in reference to Assyria. Jesus references in terms to his death and resurrection. And then and in the book of Acts, the disciples use in reference to the second coming. So there's truths about the day of the Lord, this judgment that God has coming that haven't changed. They're eternally true. They're not relegated just to the northern kingdom. I hate and I despise your feast days. Verse 21. This is still God talking. And I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I won't accept them. Nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. It's amazing. The best music in the world, God can just disregard it. And the most clumsy, awkward, spirit-filled music in the world, God accepts as a sweet offering. Isn't that nuts? It's not about the quality, it's about the heart. This would sound a bit extreme coming out of Amos's mouth. They're good church-going folks, right? They're going to the church of Bethel and the church of Gilgal, and they go to the, the church of Samaria, and they're, they're fa they faithfully attend. They, they do their sacred assemblies. They offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, just like Leviticus said to do. They're doing everything right. But it's all their preference, their way, and their plan. It's what's convenient for them. And God looks at those things, and verse 21 says, I hate, I despise. I could get that for you in the Hebrew, but it means the same thing. He hates it. It's the worst. Right? The judgment that he brings on the northern kingdom for what they're doing is really akin to what he warned Nineveh of happening. You might as well be out doing Nineveh and fish-slapping people than faking that you're doing Christianity and you're not doing the real thing. That's not just for that audience. That's for today, too. God hates false worship. That's not in a mysterious code language. I like that. God hates arrogance. And, he, and those that go through the motions of loving God, but then they refuse his word, his law, and his prophets, that's not good. <laughs> and, I'm, and it sounds like I'm giving a rebuke because I'm trying to represent Amos. This is exactly how he treats it. In our flesh, we think if we give anything to God that he must take it as valuable because we think it's valuable. But that's not the case. It's not biblical. He's not our puppet, and he doesn't have to accept our offerings, and he doesn't have to accept our songs. That's why we pray before we start worship. God, accept what we're giving you. May we have pure hearts so that you accept this from a pure heart. 
Lord, reveal in us any wicked ways that we can repent of them and come before you and be right with you. Before we take, uh, before we take communion, we often pray about like repenting of our sins. We spend time in prayer doing that for a reason. It's because it's important. Don't come before God and have sin in your heart. Get rid of it. The fattened peace offerings. <laughs> so the burnt offerings and the grain offerings were requirements, but peace offerings were just over the top. I just want to bless the Lord with extra. So the fact that they're fattening those up and just giving the, more to God in that stuff, because they're doing it in their own way, it's not to God at all. It's to their own ego. Fattened peace offerings. That's not a complimentary way to refer to them. Don't give gifts or do things for the Lord when you're not doing the basics, when you're not doing what he's actually asked you. Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you bring a gift to my altar and you remember that you have a brother that has something against you, leave the gift before the altar, go your way and be reconciled with your brother, then come offer my gift. If you got stuff you're harboring and you come before God to study his word, worship, fellowship with the saints, pray, you should get that stuff handled because God would rather you had good relationships with each other before he wants to deal with you as in a relationship. These are hard things to hear. The noise of your songs is the word that Amos uses. I, you know, I can apply that to myself because I'm not, you know, when I make a song, it's kind of noisy. Um, but it's not talking about exuberance or bad singing here. He's talking about songs that are coming from a place of selfishness. Songs that are being done for the sake of singing the song, not out of worship, not a sacrifice. He says, I won't hear them. Same idea. We can sing, we can pray, we can worship, and he doesn't hear us when we do it our own way. You have to do it God's way. God has a free will to listen to us. He gives us a free will. He has a free will. He's not obligated to hear our prayers. And he's not obligated to accept our worship. This is what got Cain so angry he, he killed Abel, right? Is that God wouldn't accept his offering, even though he was doing it the way he thought he should do it. So this is a narrative we see throughout the Bible. Then you get the end of the chapter, uh, verse 24, but let's, let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. I love that every time you get a warning from God and a curse from God, you also get the flip side of the coin. Here's the alternative. Let justice run like water. Let righteousness like a mighty stream. Streams don't have an end to them. They have a source that's ever giving. It's an amazing thing that God created with water tables and water cycles. A mighty stream is an adjective that's thrown on there as one that never withers or fades. In the Middle East, there are rivers that dry up, but this is a mighty stream. It's one that doesn't dry up. Let, let that be how it goes. So I've been a really good person. Then good, keep being a good person. Let righteousness just keep flowing. Just keep doing it. I did the right thing. I was just that one time. Then good, keep doing the justice. Verse 25, did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? The answer to that is no. The sacrifices and offering are nothing. They're not important. They're just symbols. He says, did you do this when you were in the wilderness? No, but did he provide for them in the wilderness? Yeah, he did. They were his people. He loved them. You also carried Sicketh your king and Chi and your idols and other gods, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. An image of multiple gods being in unity. Um, frankly, Sikath and Chian are odd references. We've seen references to other gods. The idea here is that you've got these, these unique gods that are known for being harmonizers with other gods, right? This is coexist. 
you've melded everything together and you carried these kings, you carried your idols while you came and worshipped me at the same time. The star of your gods is a reference to kind of a, a rising Babylon. You made yourselves. These are all things you just made up. You made up your own religions. And you paired them and you, they get along just fine with their other fake religions of the world. Only your fake religion's a Yahweh fake religion. So at the end of the day, the list of indictments has been long. Five chapters worth of things that Israel's done wrong and other nations. But the path to repentance is super clear. Seek the Lord and live. How do I seek the Lord? Well, get the heck out of Bethel and don't stop until you hit Beersheba. <laughs> right? Just go south and get out of here because what I'm bringing to the northern kingdom, it's going to be messy. When Jesus returns, he tells us the same. We should be like a bride getting ready for her husband to show up and carry her away. Dressing ourselves in righteousness. Read Proverbs 31 like you're part of the bride of the church. We should be doing those things that prepare us and get us ready for our groom to come pick us up. Says the Lord, Therefore I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. This is directly what's going to happen. Uh, literally to the northern kingdom, they're going to get carried away into captivity. Not to Damascus, but beyond Damascus, because they'll be hauled away all around the extents of that empire. This is not good, because in getting carried away beyond Damascus, they're going to evaporate as a people. They won't be known anymore. They'll either die, or they'll be unknown because they're living in other cultures. So these tribes, or, or the 90% of them, are going to no longer exist. Thankfully, we have remnants that actually go to Judah, so we still have descendants of those tribes. Says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Jesus promises judgment in hell, just like Amos told the northern kingdom. The disciples maintained this message, and they gave advice for it. 2 Peter 3.17, You therefore beloved. And again, these are messages that are hard to hear, right? Because they're prophecies, right? But I love that Peter throws in the word beloved. Like, the reason we tell you this is because we love you. This is the reason why we told the kids not to play with little snakes. You don't know if they're poisonous or not. So until you can identify things that are safe and unsafe, just don't mess with it. Don't mess with God. Beloved, seeing you know these things, beware also. You know what you should do, but beware also. Be led away with the error of the wicked and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Hasn't changed. That we, our response to these kinds of things, judgment is coming. Our response to that is serve the Lord Jesus. It's really easy. And then you can take the worry away. You can take the anxiety away. And I, and I think you can look at prophecy without a heart of anxiousness, but with a heart of, oh, God's coming. Because I see injustice everywhere. I see things that God hates all over the place. And I know the nature of my God is to not let those things continue. And the day of the Lord is coming. And I just pray it doesn't land upon me. I want to be evaded. I would like it to go right over me, just like a Passover. I'd like God's judgment to skip over me because I am protected or guarded or forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, that's one of mine. And I will, that one sought me and therefore they're saved and they'll be protected. So that said, we will continue with Amos next week and go more at our normal pace. Um, let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the direction that it gives us.
Lord, help us to have open hearts to it, not to be cautious about it, but to embrace it and to accept what you say about human living that you don't like. And Lord, I don't know why we would resist that. Why would we, why would we would want to argue for sin? Um, Lord, when you tell us what you despise and what you hate, we want to run from it. We want to run from it like it's the grave itself. And Lord, there's many things that we're repulsed by, but for some reason our flesh just wants to dabble with things that are sinful. And Lord, I pray that we just as a body, as a fellowship of brothers and sisters in the Lord, we pursue you with everything we got. Lord, help us to just embrace the good, the righteous. Help us to enjoy our feasts, to enjoy the things that we've done to your honor. And Lord, when we give, help it to be a, just an act of love. Lord, when we minister to one another, help it to be something that fills our hearts so that the world doesn't have a claim and there's nothing the world has that compares to the love that we have. So Lord, may your spirit flow, may your love abound, may your peace instill, and may your joy overflow in Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.